In the mid-70s, I was a salesman out of Lubbock, Texas, and uh, on Mondays, we called on an area called uh, the East Side, which is a precinct on East Lubbock, and uh, not the best place to be around sometimes. Uh, I was pulling up to my uh, first customer, which was Red and Johnny's, and uh, it was about 9 o'clock. The liquor store wasn't open, but the beer store was, and I, just as I pulled into the driveway, a customer came running out with a bottle of Thunderbird in his hand. And right after him was the owner owner's son, and he laid across the hood of my car and emptied a thirty eight at the guy while he's running across the cotton field. And when he finished, he looked at me and says, Damn it, I missed. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas AM University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. Alcoholic beverages have long been a bone of contention in Texas, with many counties and cities remaining dry only up until recently. Today, only four counties are completely dry, while 195 are partially wet or partially dry or moist, if you prefer, while 55 are completely wet. Even still, liquor stores can't be open on Sunday nor past 9 p.m. the other days. It's not as much of a mess as it was 30 years ago when you could walk across the street in Amarillo and go from dry to wet and not even know it. And it's not as restrictive as it once was in Canyon, where in 2014, the city voted itself kind of wet, allowing all adult beverages to be sold in restaurants, but only wine and beer at retail. There are stories to be told of the challenges faced in navigating these tricky waters. My guest today is J. Pat Richmond, longtime professional with Glazers at the wholesale level of adult beverage distribution and, as fate would eventually have it, an alum of WT. But before we talk about beverages, which you can feel free to grab one at home while you're listening, I'd like to dive in first to J. Pat's personal story and how he earned his bachelor's degree. Welcome to the show, J. Pat. I had the pleasure of visiting with you last fall to write a small feature about you for the College of Business newsletter. But I I felt there was a much better platform for telling that story. Uh, And it's by having you here on the show. It's a success story uh, that we highly regard. Uh, Tell us how it all began, some 50 plus years ago. Um, and then we'll walk through the various steps along the way. What, what brought you to WT and when was that? Well, I really didn't have any choice. WT is kind of our family's university. Uh, my grandmother, she went to school here, I guess, high school and uh, college. And she, uh, she graduated, well, I don't know if she graduated or not. She got a teacher's certificate back about 1925 or so, something like that. And, uh, you know, my dad, was here he played football here and uh i've had aunts and uncles and cousins and i have them cousins going now to school here and, and got one working here so you know it's just always been been our place and that's uh there really wasn't any other discussion on where i was going to go to school but but ultimately you did not finish and and you stepped away to start other chapters in your life tell us about that what you know what what caused all this well as a 18, 19, 20-year-old young man, uh, when I was here, I discovered other distractions. <laughs> <laughs> Let and, me guess. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, it's, it, it, was, it was still a good experience, and, but uh, I'll never forget, uh, uh, I got enough to go down and see the dean, and uh, I had no idea what it was. 
went in there and he suggested I might take a couple of semesters off. <laughs> so you did. Huh? Yeah. I told Dr. Terry one time, I said, my discussion for the deans now are a whole lot different than they used to be. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I was, uh, had been working in a, in a package store uh, while I was in school. And about that time, the owner of that, st- uh, the manager of that store opened up the first package store in uh, Donnelly County, which is Howardwick. And so he asked me if I want to go down there and work. And I said, sure. So I went down there and I sold the first legal bottle of whiskey in Don- Donnelly County since the 1880s. So it was, it was something else. It was, we were pretty busy there for a long time. And, uh, but I worked for him through the summer and, uh, he came up to me. I'd always talked about wanting to go in the wholesale business. And he, he came up to me and says, you need to go see Mr. Baskin over at Glazier's. He wants to talk to you. So I went and saw him and talked to him and had a really good interview. I said, I'll do whatever you want to do. And, and he, I had, uh, my route consisted of every account nobody else wanted. Entry level job. Huh? Absolutely. It was. <laughs> and, uh, but during the interview, he said, uh, you know, where do you, where, where do you want to go with this? And I said, well, actually, I've been watching you out, so I'd like to have your job at some point. And, you know, come to think, when, when it was all through, I had this job for, gosh, over 30 years, you know, and that was kind of neat. And uh, I used to go pick him up, and he'd make calls with me. But uh, anyway, getting back to that first uh, territory I had, I'd spent a couple of days, three days in Lubbock and two in Amarillo. And, uh, and then eventually I went into a, a sales job with them, Spirits and Wine in Lubbock. And I was there for about, I think we were there about nine years. And, uh, you know, you get to a point, I guess I was 30, wanted to go into management and, uh, and Abilene was opening up. So I was the first manager of Abilene with, with my team and, uh, we went around, I guess, you know, all, all we ever did is go around and, and open up new stores. And uh, that was that was very interesting because they, they went wet, but uh, they acted like they didn't want to, you know. And so uh, normally clubs are open until 2 o'clock in the, in, the, in the morning. Not only did they close at midnight, you had to be out of the account by midnight. So, and it's still that way to this day. But uh, uh, from there, I went and uh, went to Dallas for a while and then uh, got moved to uh, San Antonio, where I was general sales manager at San Antonio. And I was there five years. Had some interesting stories from there. That was, that was a fun job, though. I called on the Hill Country and, and uh, uh, you know, those people. It was just a wonderful place to live. <laughs> and anyway, the job came open in, in Amarillo for a branch manager. And I told the owners that uh, I'd like to have that job. And uh, the Glazers were just, I mean, they were family to me. And, and, and Robert Glazer says, why? <laughs> I said, that's where I'm from. I want to move home. <laughs> so anyway, that was in 1989. So, And I've, I've been here ever since. But uh I was branch manager. We were over, I was over top 26 counties, Amarillo and Lubbock. And then uh, we had a lot of changes uh, the way we went to business. I mean, and we can talk about it later, but, you know, 
everything started changing. And then I uh, would uh, become regional manager. And then they started closing warehouses. So mine was one of them. And uh, they were consolidating and, and, and shipping. So we were we were getting semis in every day that would all of our stores and merchandise would be on carts and we load our trucks and we, they call it cross docking. And that's what we, that's what we did. And that's still doing it to this day. But, uh, anyway, I was, uh, with them 46 years and, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was a great ride. I'm not, not many people get to do that. That is great. 46 years with one company. That's, that's admirable. It's unheard of today. That's for sure. Glazers is a huge company. I mean, they're, they're, uh, properties are not just in Texas, but also Arkansas and Louisiana. What's their story? How long they've been around? How'd they get so big? The family moved from Chicago, and in 1910, they started a uh, juice company in uh, Dallas and uh, selling, had wagons just selling it on the streets. Uh, eventually, they, uh, became, I guess, probably the biggest Pepsi Cola distributor in the state. Um, you know, they, they did that and then, uh, prohibition hit and, uh, they could see wh where it was going to end. And they thought, you know, that might be a pretty good business to be in is wide open. And the Glaciers became, uh, the first slits distributor in the state. And actually, uh, Nolan Glazier tapped the first legal keg after Prohibition in Dallas. And uh, then they started carrying lines of, of, of spirits. And uh, this was in the 30s. And then, oh, Louisiana and Arkansas came along about the same time in the early 40s. And then uh, uh, in 1966, we acquired uh, Arizona. And uh, we stayed like that for Oh, a long time. And then uh, we eventually, before we merged with Southern, I believe we were in 12 states all through the Midwest. And uh, and while this was going on, we decided we wanted to be in the beer business. So we bought, uh, we bought a beer distributor in, I believe it was in Nebraska, and then we got some in Kansas. And then now... Probably we're the largest Miller Coors distributor in the state. We're in, uh, I guess, yeah, I got to go around the state here. We're in El Paso, San Angelo, Midland, Odessa, um, Rio Grande Valley, San Antonio, and Waco. So we have a lot of that going on. They just purchased, I was, I was just went uh, hunting with one of the owners two weeks ago, and he said they just bought another distributorship. I think they said Missouri, but somewhere. And so that, you that, guys got a big grip on the South. Yes. And that, and, and the Glacier beer and beverage is still totally the Glacier family. And they, when they merged with Southern, uh, then that, that was just wine and liquor. Now you have told me so many times whenever you see my social media posts in which I feature photos of, uh, old signs and stuff, but, you know, particularly some old uh, remote liquor stores in Texas, you always come up and say, I've been there. You know, it's like, I've been to that one. I've been to that one. And, and I'm convinced that you've been to every liquor store in West Texas, maybe the whole state of Texas. 
And so what were you doing on all those visits other than maybe trying to dodge bullets from a guy in East Lubbock? <laughs> well, I've West, you know, being a manager of West Texas, you know, everything West of Fort Worth was under my territory all the way to the border and to El Paso to all the way back up here. And then when I was in San Antonio, uh, you know, we went all the way down to Laredo, Eagle Pass and, and, uh, Austin, you know, we had Austin back then. So, I mean, it's other than Houston, far East Texas and Dallas, I've had responsibilities over. Um, now I've been to a lot of the stores in other, other markets, but, uh, those, those are mine. And a lot of those that you, that you see, I, 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 I just grinned because yeah, I remember when, I went, when we did that, I'd be usually, it's usually when I was working with a salesman, you know, we would do that. And, then, and a lot of them were when I had my own, had my own, uh, route as a salesman, but uh, most of them are when I was when I was manager. And uh, anyway, it's good to see those signs. I, I like that. You, and that's something we can talk about here in a little bit because uh, uh, the business has changed so much that uh, I don't know how much longer we're going to see that. It's yeah, I know. The, the time I posted a, a photo of a of a little store in Dickens, Texas, you were all excited, and I'm thinking, man, not many people even know where Dickens, Texas is, much less this little store there. But you knew all about it. <laughs> it's called Edith's Place place and uh they were characters she and her husband and and uh i went by there one time and i went my god edith what did you do i mean her store was painted yellow they had gotten some road stripe paint oh, no. and painted <laughs> yellow. It, it was something else hmm. but uh that that was an interesting run we, that was my we called it my country run i'd, I'd go down there and i'd start uh I'd drive through Dickens, and then I'd go to Guthrie and Knox City, and there's stores there. That, of course, the, four, uh, four, the Sixes uh, store was there at uh, uh, between uh, Guthrie and Knox City, and you know, I'd, I got to know a lot of the cowboys there, and it's, it's, it, was, it was a neat neat deal. And just, it was just an all-day deal driving back all the way through Post and coming home. That's yeah, big country out there, mm-hmm. that's for sure. But at some point, um, you started thinking it might be a good idea to finish what you started back here at WT. What was that all about, and what was it that motivated you to pick up where you had left off decades before? Well, I was always, you know, in in, in my position at, around ownership, and uh, I was in Amarillo. I was responsible for you know, forty forty five million dollars a year of sales, and uh, which is a lot of money to be responsible for and Robert Glazer we're in a meeting and he asked me he said uh where did you graduate and I said well I didn't Robert and he said why I'll pay for it so I didn't uh go back exactly then but but just a few years later you know I I was after my my employees and and it really helped me it really kind of motivated me in hiring and making you know, I got to where I tried to hire a lot of people with uh, that were degreed and so on and so forth. And then I looked around and, um, you know, my office manager had, she had a double master's. And I had a sales manager in Lubbock that had a master's. And then I had a lot of, you know, bachelors. And everyone's educated. And, and a bunch of them, even from the warehouse, were, were going to school because we, we, would, we would pay for it. Just, you know. 
And uh, so anyway, I was looking up on the wall, and I didn't have one, kind of made me mad. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm expecting a lot more out of my employees than I'm expecting out of myself. So I went home and told my wife, and said, I'm going to go back to school. And she says, okay. <laughs> says, you're awful old but go ahead you know so i did and I, I i i drove down here not knowing having a clue what i was going to do but i went to the administration building and told them what i want to do and they gave me the records and stuff to do what i needed to do but still you know okay so i just walked over here i started walking down the hall until i heard some noise and i think i might have gone in in and you're off. We talked about this. Is I went. I found Terry Pearson. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you know he took me real serious, and we had a, you know a lot of similar backgrounds. And he said, "If you're serious about this, I'll help you." And it's going to be a lot of work. And you know he was. Uh, he and Barry Demond were kind of my my uh, mentors coming through school. I don't know when I was done without them. So well, that's great. What did your employees think about the fact that you went back to school? Because you know, really what you were doing is uh, you're basically trying to give them, well, they already gave you the example, mm-hmm. but but you felt like you needed to at least be on par, right? So right. what did they think of that? They liked it. I thought it was great. And uh, I remember I've got, I had one that was, he started going to school and uh, he got his bachelor's and he, went, he, he got his master's. Well, that's and great. So, so you motivated others uh-huh, in the yeah, process. Uh-huh. That's good. And what did you study when you came back to WT? And and about what years are we talking here? I came back in 2002, and I was able to uh, use 78 hours. So I think I had to have 122 or three years. I don't know what it was. So I was able to take, in the big semesters, I'd take six hours, and, and I'd take three-hour courses in the summer. Um, it was, uh, I, you know, I, I made so many friends and, and uh, I learned so much. And what, one thing that I learned was uh, once I started interacting with the professors, you know, they would interact with me and, you know, and we'd have classes and, and you know, they, they would defer questions to me, you know, if, and especially, you know, business management classes. And uh, it, it was it was a pretty good uh, team deal. I uh, one of my last courses I took, I, I could, it's kind of a free course, and I took a, a two hundred level management course because Pearson was teaching it. He said, "Why are you taking this course?" I said, "Because I'm going to blow out an A." Him <laughs> <laughs> Pearson goes, "That's funny," and he says, "We'll see." Yeah, <laughs> but you know, you're you're talking about your own experience and maturity uh, complementing what you were suddenly now studying much later. I, I understand what you're saying because uh, many years ago, I had a student much the same situation. He was the manager at a Pakasac here in Canyon. And he, in an earlier life, he'd been a manager with Safeway here because, you know, the Pakasacs brought a lot of Safeway people in. And I used to just, he'd start talking. I'd just sit down and say, Gary Don, you you finish, <laughs> take over, Matt, and tell stories because you've done this, and all I'm doing is telling you what the textbook says. I had one time, I had gotten up at oh dark thirty, and I was on a five forty five flight to Dallas, and I was in meetings all day, and uh, I flew back, and 
I think I landed about six. I don't know. I think night classes started at six. I, mm-hmm. 6.30. Usually 6.30 or yeah. seven. Yeah. Anyway, I come in and Terry didn't like it if you were late. And uh, I walked in and it was a full class. I had to walk all the way around the back and I find my place to sit down. And Terry goes, hmm, let's let Mr. Executive get ready here. <laughs> and anyway, we're sitting there and this class is going on and I am tired. I am sleepy. I fall asleep in class. All I hear was, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I'm going to defer that question to Mr. Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> I had no clue what what he was talking about. Oh, my. After after class was over, I said, what are you doing? He was, he was laughing so hard. I said, <laughs> anyway, we, we did that the whole time I was in school. Well, that's good. You had fun. And, yeah. and he was probably, he's he's now deceased, but he was mm-hmm. probably, you, you weren't very far apart in age at the time. No. At all. Mm. So that, that helped no. you, you guys hit it off. So ultimately you finished, you got your degree. Uh, tell us how this all came to a successful ending. Well, I remember my last class and there were several professors that knew this was my last class. And then when I finished, it was, uh, I think it was, a, it was a, some sort of math class. But anyway, when I, everyone, when I walked in, everyone knew it. And when I, when I finished, I went, Done. <laughs> Done. I walked out. There were three professors at the doors at, at the classes. All high five me when I walked by. But uh, at the uh, graduation, I had uh, just had major back surgery, and uh, so I was in a brace from my waist to my shoulders. And and as a matter of fact, while this was going on, before I could go back to school Barry DeMond would come and put my homework in the mailbox I would do it stick it back in the mailbox he'd pick it up the next morning wow so but when on a, I'll never forget on graduation day we're in the line we're walking up there and uh, I look down we're getting ready to walk in and my shoes untied and there's this little girl, lady, that I'd had several classes with. And I said, my shoe's untied. Can you tie my shoe? <laughs> and she's a, she's a little cow, she's a little cowgirl. And she turned around with one of those whistles that just made everyone like this. He said, she said, stop the line. I've got to tie J-Pat's shoe. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. So we walked in, and then I walked up to uh, uh stage, Dr. O'Brien, and he says, congratulations. We'll have a glass of wine later. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, just when that happened, my wife, where they told everyone to save their applause to last, she says, that's about time to hit the air horn and there's a bunch of Glacier people up there just yelling. <laughs> Party time, right? So, so how, how did having a degree finally help you on the job, especially after you had already learned the industry inside and out? Well, it just kind of gives you confidence. and and I, and I, and. I learned a lot too. I, I learned a lot, mm. and um, I had one more promotion coming, so that that didn't hurt. And uh, Glaziers appreciated it because I got a check in the mail for a lot of money. <laughs> you know, just congratulations. Oh, well, that's good. You know, that type of deal. But 
Yes, it it it, it helps and it gives you confidence and it uh, in the community and and here I mean I made a lot of friends that I probably wouldn't have had if I hadn't gotten it just because of where it, where it put me, you know. Um, but then you retired. Uh, what has life been like since then? Well, I've been on several boards. I was when I retired, I was I was still on the uh, uh, West Texas A&M Foundation board, and then. Uh, I rolled off that, and I, I'm back on the College of Business Board. Uh, I'm president of the Amarillo Gun Club, which is like having a full-time job. <laughs> we've we've created a monster out there, and I've been on uh, – I'm on uh, uh, our church board. So I am just I do a lot of that. And then I uh, love to hunt and uh, boat, and then we go up the mountains and four-wheel all the time. So. so it sounds like you're busy. It just doesn't pay very well. It doesn't. <laughs> if you could run it all back, what would you do differently? I would have wished that the College of Business was run like we're doing now and, and, and improving on now. Uh, as an 18-year-old coming in here, you really didn't have, and this is, I'm talking about 1968, uh, you really didn't have the mentoring, the the people you could go to and and talk to you you were just on a little boat just floating around, and uh, that's what happened to me. I had no no one making sure I was, you know, did I need any help or this or that. And now, you know, that's changing. You know, we're getting ready to start that the uh, the mentoring program here with people like myself and David Hudson and and. Uh, Working with the older students and the younger ones, and and you know those are, that's what the kids need. I mean, you just if sometimes you're just not. I wasn't mature enough to say, "Hey, you got to do this." And uh, what I would do different now, had I known how to uh, apply myself, I would have gotten a a BBA, an MBA, then I would have done my best to go to law school, get a law degree, and become some sort of entrepreneur. That's what that. If I had to do over again, that's what I'd do. Any words of advice for those thinking of dropping out of school? I mean, we we see this, you know, from time to time. We see it more frequently than we would like. And sometimes it really, you know, it's it can be sad, very sad when we see people walk away from something that they're already well along the way to accomplishing. What would you give as advice to someone who's thinking of dropping out? Or for that matter, let's flip the coin considering returning I would suggest that uh, well I, I would want to find out what their circumstances yet first uh, I've talked to many people I said you know don't if you don't have reasons to, to leave don't because uh, you know you're still an active learner you can you know, you can get this done. You need that. And and now the, the MBA is the old BBA. And, uh, you know, just keep working towards uh, what terminal degree you want to have. And, uh, you know, there's people that can help you. But if once you drop out, the easier it is to say, I don't need to go back. Because I did that. And, uh, you know, you life happens. You have kids, you have this, you have, you know, financially you can't afford it and this net. And so, you know, I, my, my advice to them is 
if they just wanted to quit. I mean, if there wasn't some reason, but let's don't do that. Let's think about this. You've got a lot invested here. Well, I'm I'm glad you did come back because we really do consider yours a success story, and that's great. You know, it's 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 great for you, and this is what we like to be able to help write or or lead at least uh, as professors uh, and and administrators here at the College of Business. We we want to see people succeed, no matter what stage in life. When we come back, we'll dive into the nuances of distributing alcoholic beverages in Texas and the challenges faced by everyone in the business. Life sometimes has a way of interfering with our university education. Marriage, family, work, any or all of these can cause us to hit the pause button on our degree with hopes of one day finishing it. The only problem is that returning to campus can get a lot harder when you're no longer 20 years old. And that's precisely why we launched our online BBA with majors in accounting, finance, general business, marketing, management, human resource management, and computer information systems. Available completely online. You can return to school without having to step foot on campus, or maybe you want to transfer in from a two-year program elsewhere, but once again, are not able to attend face-to-face. Our online offerings are for you as well. We can help you finish your degree and climb higher on your career ladder at your pace and in your time. We're double A CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with the WTBBA in hand. For more info, find us at wtnu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. The more I travel, the more I've come to realize that every state has its own idiosyncrasies and crazy laws pertaining to adult beverages. For example, in Montana, craft breweries have to close by 8 p.m., and last calls at 7.30. I mean, that's so early. It's not even dark out, not even close to dark. The sun is high in the sky in the summer there in Montana. But they're already thinking of going home, but that's the law. In Utah, you can only be served two glasses of beer at a time, whether for your own small tasters or for you and your pals. And you can't walk around with beverage in hand, table to table. In some states, they card everyone, no matter how old you look. That kind of makes me feel good. Uh, And in some states, liquor is sold by state-owned stores, but beer and wine can still be sold at retail. It's it's confusing at best. And but here we are in Texas. We have very strict times when spirits can be sold at retail, but oddly enough, they'll allow pina coladas and daiquiris to be sold through a drive-up window. Okay, I know, I know, I know. They're they're sealed in cellophane, but still, how tempting could that get? What are some of the more incidents you have experienced while in the business, Jay Pat? Well, I'll answer the deal about the uh, pina coladas and daiquiris first. Number one, you can't sell spirits out a window. Okay, those those are made with they're wine. wine. They're wine, wine based. based, but they're still alcohol. That's very true. <laughs> and you know, in our business, we do not and will not promote uh, drinking while driving and underage drinking. That's good. And you can't tell me that as soon as they clear that convenience store, they're not going to pull that cellophane off and be drinking on it. That's so, that's, that's what I think about it. Um, bizarre events that I've had, incidents, uh, like interactions at stores and so forth. Is that what you're saying? Anything, anything along those lines? Well, <laughs> one store, one large store in uh, San Antonio, I saw a guy shoplifting some liquor 
And so, uh, I went after him and, uh, I was, uh, a wrestler at Tascosa and I wasn't too far past all those past that. So he wouldn't listen to me. So I went and I grabbed him and he wanted to get it on. And so I, I took him down on, on the asphalt and got him where he couldn't move. And, and when the police got there, when they got him up and <laughs> frisky, he was carrying a pistol and, and, and a, uh, a switchblade. So I thought twice about doing that again. And, uh, anyway, uh, I was in one store getting an order, all-star liquors down in, in, on the strip. And, uh, a customer came in with his car. And the funny thing about it was, it's like, oh, I went too far. I'm going to back out. <laughs> <laughs> he literally <laughs> we, came in we, with his car. <laughs> oh yeah. We took the wall out. So we, uh, explained to him he wasn't going anywhere. But I think the, uh, one of the funniest things that happened was, oh, probably 10 year, 10, yeah, about 10 years ago, I had a truck, had about 500 cases of whiskey on it. And I went to, uh, call, they deliver in Hereford, then go down to Dimmit, then go over to Nazareth. Well, it was kind of cold and icy. And uh, after they left Dimmit, he lost control and took that truck out into a playa lake. So it was a mess. And anyway, we drug the truck out, lost all the whiskey. But for years, farmers would be out there mining for whiskey because there were about 350 cases of whiskey out there in that, in that lake. Oh, wow. I can only imagine. So they'd, be out there, they'd be out there digging around trying. <laughs> I can just see people out there dredging the bottom. <laughs> That's too funny. Yeah. Oh, man. So when you got started in, in this business, the the whole alcoholic beverage industry, which encompasses everything from beer to spirits, it was at various stages of evolution based on the product. Spirits and whiskeys were pretty concentrated among a few companies. Beer was becoming increasingly concentrated. Uh, we were in, in a period of uh, rapid uh, consolidation or just going out of business among a lot of the smaller regional breweries in the U.S., Wine was still very fragmented with scores of wineries across the nation. What challenges did this represent to you at Glaciers, knowing that, you know, beer, sourcing sourcing the beer versus the spirits versus the wine was all very different, dependent upon what product it was? Oh, it, it wasn't a problem. Uh, as we discussed earlier, uh, in 1970, when I started, we're only 37 years past Prohibition. Nothing had changed. Uh, you still had the old standard brands and spirits. They never moved from one wholesaler to the other. Uh, everything was done on a handshake. Uh, beer, back then, the only beer that we sold was was Heineken beer. So that's that was my experience back then on beer. Uh, but uh, wine, wine. Uh, was in a very steep growth stage back then. It hadn't happened yet, but Gallo was starting to get a good hand on things. And, uh, you had some, some of the other wineries that were starting to come in and make some noise, but it wasn't until the middle to late seventies that the wine industry really blew up and took off. Um, so that's, you know, it really wasn't one of the challenges. Wine wasn't as, didn't have as big a market share as it does now. So 
That's interesting. And it's, I, and it's continued to change. I mean, th- through each through each decade, there was consolidation, and in the eighties, you know, these little brands that you used to know, they they're gone. You know, uh, then uh, in the nineties, we had this uh, advertising uh, theme that they would have from uh, uh, our national uh, WSWA and our, you know. It was, Drink better, but drink less. You know, that's when we, the absolutes were coming out and all the, the high-end stuff was starting to drift in. And they, but what happened, we started drinking better and a lot more. <laughs> what could go wrong, huh? <laughs> no, no, what could go wrong? But uh, anyway, uh, as far as challenges, it, it, it was it was the challenge then – was when the market started changing was all the new products. The challenge was selling them and getting distribution and, you know, and we're going a different way. That's every marketer's challenge. Yeah. You know, without yeah. distribution, you're dead. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's absolutely right. And it's, uh, we went through some terrific big changes. So, Well, following the repeal of prohibition, states were allowed to deal with alcohol as they saw fit. Uh, and that's why we still have a lot of these big differences from one state to the next. Eventually, uh, states latched on to the three-tier distribution system, especially as it pertained to beer. Uh, And beer wholesalers were typically given exclusive geographical territories such that there could never be two Budweiser or Coors distributors in the same territory. Basically, they held brand monopolies in their region. How did Glazers fit into this scheme? I mean, and did you sell different beers in different markets. You've mentioned all the cities where you've had warehouses and the particular ones where you do Miller Coors right now, or um, did you stick to pretty much the same ones across all of your warehouses? Well, first of all, spirits and wine is completely different than beer. Uh, If you have a Budweiser, Miller Coors distributorship, you own that brand for that territory. You own that brand until Maybe Budweiser occurs says you're not doing this what we want to. We would highly suggest that you sell it, but no, it's, it's yours to do what you want to with. As I said earlier on uh, spirits and wine, and you know a lot of it was done on handshakes. But anyway, now it's done on usually on five year contracts, and usually based on uh, uh, you know the goals it's set for you, and if you're making them or not, or they you know. And a lot of it is affected also by consolidation. You know, you might have a contract with one brand and it gets ate up by another brand and they're with another company. Well, you can say goodbye to that one because it's gone as soon as the contract's up. I I remember when I was still in grad school in Indiana, which at the time was the only state left that I knew of that had not adopted the three-tier system. So it was not uncommon for a liquor store in the South to send a truck to the North if they could buy beer for a few cents cheaper by the case. And eventually, Indiana got on board with three-tier, putting an end to all that travel. But it was pretty insane because I got to speak to people at one of the bigger liquor stores there in Bloomington. And they, you know, they told me stories of driving up to South Bend to buy beer, which was 200 miles away. They sent their own truck to do it. They weren't waiting for South Bend to come to them. Can you imagine trying to distribute beer like that now? Anyway, um, part of me has a hard time reconciling how granting local brand monopolies, though, would be good for the consumer. I mean, it's great for the wholesaler, but 
What about the consumer? Any thoughts on this? Oh, I've got a lot of thoughts on it. Uh, let's say that you own uh, Nick's Package Store in Turkey, Texas. I'm out in the middle of nowhere, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And there's not a three-tier system. Usually when there's not a three-tier system, that's where you're, you've got the distilleries and wineries shipping to you direct. You wouldn't have much merchandise probably. Uh, the first thing that we do also as a wholesaler is we're the tax man. So when we get a delivery in from, say, Kentucky or California, when it leaves, we, we pay the federal tax on it. When it comes to we're in the state, we pay the state tax, which that has nothing to do with us. So we're, that's, that's what we have to do to, to sell it. And um, so anyway, that's that we're like we're their we're their tax man. We pay all those taxes, and then of course we build it back into our into our pricing. Um, then on top of that, you've got whatever the city sales tax is. Okay, uh, the biggest thing of in, in spirits and wine is is is, is you're buying his ta- his tax dollars. You know, if if, if you uh, if you Burn it, smoke it, or drink it, you're going to be paying a lot of taxes, you know, with gasoline and cigarettes <laughs> and alcohol. But uh, the three-tier system, it, it, that's that's a one reason that they do that. It, it's, it's and, you know, our pricing was, was very, very competitive pricing. Uh, now, with some of the beer people, when Lubbock was dry, they, they you know, they were doing that. We didn't, but but, but they would. Uh Anyway, that's the reason, one reason Lubbock probably went wet when it did was because their pricing was so high and they wouldn't go down. Uh, but uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's my thoughts on a three-tier system. But one thing you didn't do or know is there's actually a fourth tier. What is that? It's where there are Class B wholesalers. And that is, say, uh, M&R Liquor in Lubbock, I mean, in Amarillo, and we'll sell to them. We can't sell spirits or spirits to a club or restaurant. But they can. They can. We can sell them wine. We can sell them beer. We can't sell them spirits. So that's that's the fourth tier. Yeah, it's kind of uh, it's rolled in, mm-hmm. kind of hidden, mm-hmm. but it only pertains to certain classes of beverages. Uh, uh, spirits. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't know about that. Now they can buy uh, a club can buy all their wine and they can buy their beer from them also. But obviously, we give them a better price. Well, I you mentioned Lubbock. Well, I remember that in the 90s when Lubbock was still dry and you go down uh just south of town on Highway 87, it looked like Las Vegas at night. All those liquor stores one after another and then once Lubbock went wet, all those liquor stores went out of business, and uh, it looks pretty dead down there now. Yeah, well, it's changed. I used to say that uh, uh, the best job on the strip was a light bulb salesman. <laughs> I believe it. There were a lot of chaser bulbs down yeah, there. There sure were, but that's you know that was a that was a an interesting way to uh, cut your teeth was calling on those stores down. Yeah, well, it made it easy. They well, were all within like two blocks of each other. And here's another thing. Also, is is when I started the a lot of the owners of the big stores, their previous job was uh, they they bootlegged, you know, back back before it got wet. And there's there's a lot of stories about that too. So 
So, and what you mentioned taxes, how high are the taxes like on say a bottle of whiskey in Texas? You know, I, I don't know now. I don't know the percentage, but I've got a scenario from, from, uh, the seventies and it was, uh, for a medium priced bottle, half gallon of, uh, or one seven five. There's another thing I'll talk about is, uh, the actual product that went in it was worth about 36 cents. And the rest of it was glass, label, taxes, and profit. Wow. But that's, that was that was a long time ago. Yeah, still something to think about when you're going shopping. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> you're, you're paying for so much non-consumable stuff. Taxes. Yeah. Wow. So how hard is it for a retailer or a shop, a bar, or, you know, wholesaler, anybody to get the proper licensing to sell these beverages because you can't just say I want to you know I want to sell beer there are hoops to go through you can't just say I want to brew beer and sell it there are more hoops to go through well the main thing on getting a license is if if you're a felon you're not going to get a license you know if you have any charges pending or anything in the past or, or whatever you have to have a you have a clean record on that, or either have a partner that does. But uh, uh, other than that, they're not that hard to get. It's you know some like New Mexico. There's only so many licenses. Right, it's finite. Yeah, that's a uh, uh, that's your inheritance as a kid. Is that it's, license? It's worth gold. <laughs> yeah. But uh, here, you know, you and I can go down file tomorrow, and you know, be having a temporary license here pretty quick where we can, you know, go in business. The burden of proof for policing sales is on the seller, of course. Um, It's their responsibility to make sure all customers are of legal age, but, and this can be the hard part, also not intoxicated. Mm. What are the penalties for violations in these areas? I know this doesn't affect you as wholesaler, but it affects the clients that you are selling to. Well, it it affected me when I was working at a package store because I got uh, sold to a minor one time, but come to find out his uh, ID was better than a Texas driver's license, so I didn't, I didn't do anything to me. But uh, the first thing you can do is is, is lose your job. Uh, TWC can, you know, if you're a wholesaler, if you do something, TWC can pull your license and you can't sell anything. Um, but you can, selling to intoxicated customers can lead to criminal indictment and uh it's it's bad you know we had a situation here about a year year and a half ago where uh a club down in amarillo sold to or let a completely wasted person leave and get in his car and he ended up going the wrong way on the highway and killed five people uh he will know well when the, when the when the trial comes up again. He got uh, he he won't see the light of day ever. I mean, so so that's that's what you get to look forward to. In the last decade or two, we've seen huge chain liquor stores gain footholds in Texas, uh, notably Specs and Total Wine. How are these big box stores changing the landscape, not only for sales and distribution, like you know you at the wholesale level, but also, like for the mom and pop stores that are trying to compete, well, let's go to mom and pops first. Uh, uh, 
it's not going to be long. Mom and pops are just going to be out in the country, way out in the country. That's uh, when we when I started selling. You walked in. You were selling to every store you walked into. Um, now, with the chains, you have medium sized chains, small chains, and you got the the big boys. It, you know, it's, it's all it's a corporate call. Like with pinkies, we'd go down to Odessa and we'd make a call on there and present what we wanted to do for however many months. Uh, and it's, it was based on uh, discounting that we had available, what they wanted, to, what they wanted to play with. Uh, the other thing is these chains like uh, Total Wine and Specs, uh, they buy a lot of private labels, so they'll ship private labels in, and uh, usually what they'll do, they'll have that, then they'll run it through our wholesale license. In other words, they'll truck will come up and bump our dock, and they'll pay us a buck or two a case, and you know then they'll take it to a store. Uh, Total Wine, uh, they run a lot of our our goods uh, as lost leaders because. It gets people in the store, then they have the opportunity to sell them their uh, their private labels, which they do an excellent job at. Let's talk about one more thing that I, I just thought of here: Sunday stores. I've I mentioned to my students the idea of a Sunday store in Texas, and they look at me like I'm from Mars because they've gone away. But I remember them from the the 1990s, my early years here. And in fact, if you follow Highway 60 West. To Umbarger, there's a little liquor store out in the country, the kind you talked about. They used to have a Sunday store. They don't use it anymore, but basically it's like a separate room that is still attached to the building, but separated by a door. It's like having two stores in the same building, kind of wink, wink. And what they would do is they would only sell beer and wine in the Sunday store and usually just through a window. Um, Basically what they were doing was dodging the liquor stores must be closed on Sunday law. What are your remembrances of those? There's, it's a lot. Most, most of the liquor stores, a lot of them, have, they have those Sunday stores. Still, I haven't seen many. Yeah, it's, uh, now, before, like, grocery stores have taken most of that business. Okay. And, uh, but no, there's nothing, everyone, had, they would call them their beer stores. In Lubbock, every, every one of them had a, you know, had a, their, they're seven to nine in their their uh, nine to twelve store, twelve or one o'clock store, whatever you know. So well, it's like every every law begs someone to find a way to get around it, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> well, when we come back, we'll look at the biggest change to happen in the beer industry in many decades: craft beer, and we'll also talk about spirits and wine a little bit too. The demand for professionals in data analytics and information systems far exceeds the supply, which is why the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business developed the Masters of Science in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics degree program. Already, external reviewers have ranked it among the highest IS programs in the nation. We are an AACSB accredited college and among the most elite business schools around the world. Available completely online, this program will help you transform businesses and propel them far into the 21st century. Data mining, data analytics, and data science are keys to your success, and we provide the key to unlock your future. Reach for the stars with a West Texas A&M Master's in Computer Information Systems and Business Analytics. For more info, find us at wtamu.edu cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. By the time we found ourselves in the 1980s, there were only about 80 breweries left in the U.S. People were still drinking beer, but 
were increasingly drinking the output of only a few large breweries. And, and although the first craft brewery dates to the mid-1970s in California, it was not until the 1990s that craft breweries started gaining traction. Skip forward to today, though, and there are now more than 9,200 breweries in the U.S. And the hardest thing for any of them uh, wishing to grow is gaining distribution. But that's no easy task. I mean, it's not like stores have empty shelves waiting for new products to be created. You know, some some new hipster craft brewery comes along and wants to sell beer. So they're, they're going to save some space for that. And wholesalers similarly don't have room waiting for new items. And, and further complicating it, restaurants and bars do not have any unused taps waiting for a keg of the latest IPA you just brewed. What are your thoughts on this challenge? Well, what they're doing is, you know, you see it in Amarillo. They're, they, they, they're opening up their uh, brewery for you to come in basically is almost like a club. You know, you can come in and drink. They have a food truck out there and, and, uh, uh, that's what Pond, Yeah. Did that for quite a while. And, and, and now they've got, they're making their, their sales are getting up. They've opened a brewery in Lubbock and, uh, they're, you know, they've got canned beer and bottled beer. And, and, uh, when the word gets out on premise on these things, on these certain things, They'll make room for another tap, and they've got those now. They're starting to get in into uh, some restaurants and clubs. So, uh, but it's hard. You have to have a good product, and you have to have enough. Now, one of the things about getting into a beer distributor is when you're going into, you know, say Budweiser here. You know, you're talking about the Texas Panhandle and and down past Plainview. So they. Uh, if they don't have enough product, it's not worth messing with. You know, you have to have the product to sell. That's a good point. It's it's volume mm-hmm. and consistency it has yes. to be consistently exactly. good. You can't have one batch good this week and the next batch be yes. not so good. It's got to be good all the time, yes. and that's tough for a small brewer to to get to that level of sophistication. And in our in our level, you know, we had uh, craft beers. We we sold them, but in Amarillo, we still have them in the rest of the state. But we had uh, Sam Adams and Sierra Nevada and some different things. Uh, but we had, for were the branches that sold it, we had it throughout the state. And uh, so it was, it was consistent. But when we would accept a, a brand like that, usually we want to go statewide or where we are selling beer. So um, if you haven't got enough product to do that, then, you know, there's no sense us even messing with it. So, and it gets harder when you realize that each of these craft breweries often has 10 or more beers that they brew. I mean, there's no way that we consumers could ever hope to find all of them on store shelves or in restaurant taps. This is just getting out. It seems like it's spinning out of control. If you got 9,200 breweries and just multiply it by 10 beers on average, that's 92,000 different beers. That's mm. I can't think of any other product category. Um that would have that many options other than maybe wine. I don't know, but that's a lot of choice. Well, a lot of these beers are seasonal also. So, but, uh, cut. What was the question? Oh, okay. Um, it was, 
<coughs> excuse me, um, it was. <coughs> it gets harder when you realize that each of these craft breweries has ten or more beers that they brew. There's no way we could ever consume all that. And I said, when you multiply ninety two hundred breweries times ten beers, that's ninety two thousand different beers. Mm-hmm. You know how? How yeah? How could we ever ex- expect to even find? all these kinds of things in stores. There's, it's just no way. There, I can't think of any other product category. Let me know when you're ready and I'll hit start, okay? A lot, a lot of these beers, they're made strictly for on-premise. You know, they're, they know they, they're, there's not, they don't have enough volume to go big time in the stores and, and like, like a United or, you know, you're, you know, you're regional or statewide like H-E-B. Um, you have to find your niche where you want to be, and and what's that what that's what's that going to do? Now, uh, as far as what that does to uh, beer distributors with them selling on premise and and so forth, is when you look at the Texas is if it's not the largest beer state in the nation, it's second. That doesn't even affect the market share with what they sell. So mm. you know. But what it does do is giving the consumers the ability to see a lot of different things. And, you know, like, uh, you know, with when you have all these craft beers and it could be spirits or and wine, there's no loyalty. People are, people, that's what we found out. They're, they can say, oh, this is the best I've ever had. And the next thing you know, you're drinking something else. They're, they're, they're hopping around trying everything. And I don't blame them. I mean, it's. Craft know. beer drinkers are yep. promiscuous. Yes, Heard that. Drink around. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, okay. In recent years, legislation has been passed that allows craft breweries, uh, which there there is a technical legal definition of what a craft brewery is. In Texas, this is now to sell up to one case, that's 288 ounces of beer per day to a customer. So this made it possible not only to sell cans, but also bottles and also especially those handy 64 ounce glass growlers that usually have... Uh, the painted logo of the of the brewery on them. They they make great souvenirs. I mean, you can ask me about that sometime. I'll I'll tell you about the three hundred that I've got in my man cave. Um, the goal was of all this legislation was to help craft brewers be able to sell beer to go, so that they could be more than just a, a tap room uh, in search of distribution. So, are you good with this very small form of competition that thereby skips distributors completely? I mean, this is going straight from manufacturer to customer. Again, I think that if you didn't do that, there wouldn't be any craft breweries. I mean, you, they couldn't they couldn't get enough volume to get it going. And again, it doesn't affect the market share those with the big guys one bit. I mean, if it's one hundredth of one tenth of one percent, you know, Big deal, <laughs> yeah. So it's it's uh, and and as a and and again as they're picking up volume and everything, strippers pick them up, you know. So it's it's you know it's but they're kind of letting them do their work, homework, and work to get to where they can move to the next level. Now, one thing you haven't brought up that does kind of or did kind of get under my skin is you can call a winery in California and tell them you want a case of Cabernet. And they'll get your credit card, and they will ship it to you. So this scenario came up. This is back before some things went wet, and uh, 
I was with the captain of the TWC, and uh, we were talking about that. I said, this doesn't sound right. I said, okay, let me ask you this question. So if someone in plain view calls a winery in California and orders a case of, of Cabernet, they can ship it there and anybody can pick it up? He goes, yep. And that's the way it was originally went, written. Now there's, there's, there's a little more, more to it, but, but uh, this is for plain view was wet. I said, well, let me ask you this. What would happen if someone wanted a case of Cabernet? And I just went and delivered it to him. He said, I'd arrest you. So, yeah, we had a little issue with that. So, Wow, that's that's crazy. Uh-huh. Now they have <sighs> their wine clubs. All the wineries have their wine yeah. clubs, and they ship they ship it everywhere. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a member of a couple. Yeah. I like getting those boxes. Mm-hmm. Well, then there's the fact that craft breweries can self-distribute up to 40,000 barrels a year. Now, that's a lot of beer, okay? A barrel is 31 gallons, Mm -hmm. which translates to a little more than, I did the math here, 103,000 12-ounce servings. That's a lot of beer. But once again, all of these bypass the middleman wholesaler. You've mentioned uh, a local Amarillo brewer who I know they've got their own truck and I know the guy who drives it and delivers the beer. He can do up to 40,000 barrels a year. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, is this once again helping the little guy, like you said, and and then with hopes that they go way beyond that forty thousand barrel threshold and therefore need glaziers or somebody to do all the heavy lifting? Well, again, how many craft breweries are going to distribute forty thousand barrels? That's a lot of beer. <laughs> They're going to need a lot of trucks. <laughs> that, that's a big number. But uh, and at 40,000 barrels annually, they're going to be picked up by a wholesaler. Uh, but again, I understand why they're doing it because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, creating, a, creating a whole new niche in, in this business. And that's my opinion. And uh, I don't think that's a bad deal. But, uh, you know, 40,000 barrels is what you can do. It's not what you do. So, uh, you know, I think that's the, – the, the craft brewers don't have the help that the wineries – the wine does mm-hmm. and the spirits does. They don't have the, that um, – uh, But each state is different, of course. Uh, over the holidays when I was in Florida, I, I was in a craft brewery, and I noticed a little uh, poster – on a, on a board in there in the in the tap room, uh, asking for people to join in the effort to allow for self distribution in Florida. Apparently, craft brewers in Florida all have to get distro through a wholesaler. They can't do anything by themselves. I mean, it's the total opposite of Texas. How hard would it be to survive in that kind of scenario? Um, I think it'd be very hard, and it leaves very little room for uh, regional or state growth. I mean, there's a handful of big Florida brewery. Cigar City comes to mind, uh, Funky Buddha. But, yeah, that's about it. The rest are all really small because they they just can't get Well, the they prob- they've probably found their niche. They're doing what they, you know, what they want to do. I mean, it's not, not everybody wants to come and be in a, be a Sam Adams. Well, that could be you right. Know? You're right. Yeah. I mean, if you can, if you can make a living off of just selling beer out of your, your one brewery, mm-hmm. And call it good. Well, hey, more power to you, right? Mm-hmm. And what's going on with wine these days? Well, it's uh, 
well, going back to the mid-70s, you know, we won a wine competition in France, which had never been done before. And that was kind of the big start of our fine wine industry, which is uh, very profitable. And uh, we have a group of wineries. As a matter of fact, we had a uh, uh, gentleman at workforce that lived in Napa Valley and would, you know, is kind of our auxiliary man for those wineries. What can we do? What what needs to be done or whatever, any problems. But uh, again, it's one of the things where you've got the small boutique wineries and then you've got the mid-range distributors and then you've got the big boys, you know, the constellations and the yellows. And, uh, and uh, it's quite a, quite a marketing deal. It's, it's a, uh, it's a lot of cases, you know, you have to sell more cases to, to equal the dollars of, of spirits, but I mean, it's a lot of cases and uh, their marketing is Gallo, especially is they've got everything down to a T. I mean, and they can let throw numbers at you all day. Well, but, wine has just taken off in Texas, especially mm-hmm. down in hill country. Uh, if you go to Fredericksburg, you're like in the center of our version of Napa Valley. I mean, there's, oh, I want to say at least 75 wineries within an hour of Fredericksburg. I mean, you can't even begin to think about going to visit all of them. It would take a month or more. Um, and not all of them have distribution. In fact, actually few truly have distribution, but they all bottle their wines uh, for, for takeaway. It is to the point now where you can go into a supermarket in Texas, go to the wine department and actually see a Texas wine section, and it's more than just one shelf facing. It's not a joke anymore. It's no. a, it's the real deal. Well, so as we discussed, we just passed went to number four in the nation, and that's just this is recent. Um, and Fredericksburg, I don't. Know, I'm sure you've been down there. It's, it's a it's, many it's times. Fun. I, we it used to be part of my territory when I was manager in San Antonio, and it was just a little old country town then. That was you know it just there wasn't much going on. Just pretty. And uh, gosh, it's, it's it's booming now, but they still get the majority of their grapes from Lubbock. Right, absolutely, because they got nice sandy soil up here. And High Plains Appalachian. That's right. And uh, of course, what's helped uh, uh, Texas wines is they've finally narrowed it down. When when I was in Lubbock, that's, they were just starting it, and they were they were bottling and making wine out of every varietal they could find, you know, and. Uh, but they finally found that the, the best grapes and best wines that they can make are the uh, Spanish varieties and the Rhone varieties of Southern France. And they're doing a great job with it. That's good. You know, compared to Florida, I, I've been to some wineries there. The only kind of grape they can grow in the Southeast is muscadines, which are really sweet. And so it doesn't doesn't make for my kind of wine, that's for sure. Um, maybe a Moscato or something like that, really sweet. And so they have to import all their grapes from all the way across the country. At least it, with the Texas wine business, we're able to use stuff that's grown in state. Yep. Some of the wineries have blended with California wines. And in California, there's some California wines that blend with Texas wines, so but it's usually on the bulk side. And and what about uh, craft distilleries? These have become all the rage as well. I know there's going to be at least one, probably two nearby, just outside of Fredericksburg here real soon. 
Uh, maybe not as prolifically as with beer, but they're becoming increasingly common. Um, are they running in a parallel universe as craft beer? I mean, craft whiskey, craft beer, is this kind of all the same mindset? Well, craft beer is uh, instant gratification. We get our brewery together, you and I, we can be kicking off beer in 45 days probably. I had a uh, gentleman come by one time and uh, my assistant called and said, there's a young man here who wants to talk to you about starting a distillery. And so he came in and we sat down with my sales manager and um, he was an economist. I mean, he was buttoned up. He had everything he wanted to do. He just wasn't sure who, what, and where. And uh, anyway, Austin was a choice. And uh, he had uh, wanted to make a start out with a gin. And I'm going, man, you need to you need, you need to you need to go you need to go with bourbon, and then come in with a, gin as a secondary item, and. Uh, Anyway, it was uh, Chris Seals with uh, Still Austin Whiskey. And uh, he went down there. He started his hysteria. I've been down there and seen it. It's uh, really neat. He's got, they've done a great job and uh, making some really good whiskey. But for the first four years, I guess, yeah, first four years, you know, they were just basically selling white whiskey uh, because their whiskey, their bourbon had to age. So it's not like you could jump in there and start like you can craft beer, but uh, he's got it going now. It just you know just is your uh, setup time and you know aging time and patience, patience, yeah. <laughs> and you know and it's hard to be patient when you know you got to wait four years. That's kind of like prison sentence. But uh, anyway, he is it's kind of one of the little premier Texas bourbons. And, you know, I always every time I see him, I go. Yep. I remember when you walked to my office, he said, yep, started there. But he went in business with his dad. They wanted to do that. And so it's it's a, quite a great success story. Well, it's hard to be patient when you don't even begin to realize an ROI until four years later. And the other craft story I have is uh, one where uh, I had a, uh, my boss called, says this guy, he's got a vodka we just picked up. He's making it by hand down there in Austin. And his name's Tito Beverage. I've heard. <laughs> and he came in. We were, this is about 1999, and we were selling. I looked. We were selling three or four or five cases a month, and I pulled some samples out, and labels were not on straight. And But, I mean, he was literally bottling one bottle at a time and putting a label on. And uh, anyway, he came and talked to us and told us about his experience. He, you couldn't borrow money for uh, spirit distillation in Texas. No one had done it yet. And so he had to use other means. Uh, to get financing, and and he, and he did. And uh, the smartest thing he's done is he has six SKUs. Wow, it keeps it streamlined. He has yeah. not gone to flavored vodkas or anything. He sells Tito's vodka, and you know it's number one vodka in the nation now, as far as I know. And good for uh, him. Yeah, his super deal. Well, my guest today has been J. Pat Richmond, retired Glazers executive and, of course, a very proud WT alum. Give us your best shot, J. Pat. Regrets. 
My regret is not finishing my MBA. Regrets won't go away unless you can do something about it. Don't be like me. And one last thing, go Buffs. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff speak.